Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here in these spaces, and we plead with you, give us your spirit of illumination as we tackle this text from Genesis chapter 17. Father, as we talk about circumcision, as we talk about baptism, we look forward, Jesus, to you meeting us as we speak of these things. Thank you that by your crucifixion and resurrection, you're pleased to greet us by grace. So would we know the grace of Jesus this morning and be drawn to you. Father, for your glory, we pray in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. And I would like to tell you an engagement story, my engagement story, to my now wife, Emily. The engagement part of the engagement story is actually secret. I'm not going to tell you that part, but I am going to tell you the part about the engagement ring, namely that at first, there was no engagement ring. At first, it was Emily's idea, but I got on board with it too. So there was an engagement without an engagement ring. And this wasn't some anti-jewelry, anti-anything material, polemic, deeply held stance. But we were young, and we were in love, and we said, we don't need a stinking ring to signify the love and commitment we have for one another. We already have all of that love, all of that commitment. Who needs a ring? And so, 
we started telling people that we were engaged. And this started happening over and over again. Emily would tell friends and family, hey, I'm engaged to Jim. And people would say, hey, that's awesome. And then what would they do? They would look at Emily's left fourth finger, the ring finger, and say, where's the ring? And then when I would tell my friends and family, hey, I'm engaged to Emily now, they would say, that's great. And then they would follow up and say, tell me about the ring. And so over and over again, Emily and I would explain, hey, we're not doing a ring. It's totally fine. It's about the love and commitment that we have for each other. And people heard that graciously. But after a little while, we began to get worn down by the same thing over and over again. And occasionally, people would come back to me and Emily and say, so are, are you really engaged? Is, is this a thing? And the people in that category may have included parental units of, of Emily and, and me. So one day, after a few months of this, Emily very apologetically, and I did ask her permission to tell the story, came to me and said, hey, I just want you to know that I have no doubt for our love and commitment for one another, but I feel like I, I really want a ring. And I thanked her for talking about this, and I said, you know what, I've actually been feeling the same way. So we got a ring. The coda of the story is that nowadays Emily does not wear her engagement ring anymore <laughs> because it's really ugly because I designed it. And it, it kind of went exactly like this. If you would have asked me when we were in the process of figuring out what to do with the ring, Jim, you're 21 years old. You have been jewelry indifferent for your entire life. You've never noticed a piece of jewelry of, every, of any kind. Do you have confidence that you can be the one to design from scratch an engagement ring for Emily? And I would have said, yeah. And then if you would have followed up with me and said, Jim, are you so confident of your ring design that you will look at no catalog, you will do, do no internet searching to look at what anybody else in the history of the world has done with your engagement ring? I'm like, no, I don't need to look at any others. I've got this. And it turned out that it was really ugly. So. You can follow our social media feed this week. We'll take a picture of the ring. I'll, I'll forward it on to Pat. And you can also listen to the Post Sunday Blues, the sermon debrief, where you can hear Emily's side of that engagement story. So, but we did have a ring, even though it was ugly. It worked just fine. But it wasn't just peer pressure that made Emily and I begin to think, hey, we really do want a ring. There is a sense in which we came to appreciate that the ring kind of made it real, right? And that's the same with a wedding ring, a wedding band. Now, a relationship, a marriage is more than just a little ring of metal or polyurethane or whatever you do, married people, for, for the ring on the middle finger. But it encapsulates it. And so, for me, there is... An inscription on the ring, E to J, Emily's ring says J to E, 6, 1 John 4, 19. We love because we first, because he first loved us. 
And this ring signifies that I am not my own, but I'm for Emily. And Emily's ring likewise signifies that she is not her own. She is for me. It makes it tangible. And come to think of it, tangible is important. Matter matters. Materiality matters. And when something really important happens in your life or is going on, it's natural for us as embodied souls living in a material world to want some type of physical, tangible encapsulation of it. We frame our diplomas. If you're an employee of the month somewhere, you're going to want your name on that plaque. Students, if you do sports or academic competitions of different kinds and you win, you're not going to say, oh, I don't need a trophy. It's not about a piece of gilded plastic on my mantle. I already know that I won. No, you're going to say, I want the trophy. It's really important, right? Because matter matters. But now think about Christian spirituality. It is a spirituality. And so much of what Christianity is all about, by design, is invisible. It's intangible. That's what spiritualities are. And yet, even for followers of Jesus, God graciously gives us tangible touchstones, physical manifestations of God's love for us and his relationship to us in Jesus Christ. We call them sacraments. And in the Protestant tradition, we hold that there are two, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we encounter an Old Testament version of a sacrament, a touchstone, a physical manifestation here in Genesis chapter 17. This is the first time in the Bible that we talk about circumcision. This is where the whole Jewish rite of circumcision begins. Not just anywhere in the scriptures, but right here. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The title of this sermon is Circumcision and Baptism. True Confessions. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking up and trying to formulate a title. But I knew that what I wanted to talk about this morning is circumcision and baptism. And that might seem like an esoteric thing to have to talk about on a Sunday morning. Think of it in a couple of different directions. One, I don't think here at Liberty Collingswood from the pulpit, I've spent a lot of time anywhere ever talking about baptism. So it'll be fun to pop the hood, talk a little bit more about that. And then also we can think of it this way too. For everybody, not just inside the church, not just religious people. There are plenty of things, plenty of things that mark us physically one way or another. What is marking you? How is it forming you? And how are you living it out? So, the sermon series here is Genesis, then and now. Two parts for the sermon the rest of the way. Circumcision then, baptism now. Here we go. We are back here in Genesis on the main track and I've talked as we go through this Abraham cycle of stories in Genesis that there are some main track types of stories and then some side stories, some side quests. The main stories are the ones about God continuing to build out his covenant with Abraham. And here we are back on that main track here. 
What is a covenant? Talked about it first, Genesis chapter 12, hit it again, Genesis chapter 15, going to hit it again in the new year, and Genesis chapter 22. As God adds layers to this covenant, which can be defined as the structure of promises by which God redeems his people. Talked about that before. Covenant, the structure of God's promises by which he redeems his people. And the illustration that I'm so excited to use again is the Russian nesting doll. Does that ring a bell for anybody that's heard the other sermons? It's a little doll, wooden doll. It's really small, but then another one that looks just like it on top, on top, on top, on top. It's kind of like a covenant. There's one that God has made Old Testament and New Testament with his people, but they're keeping layers added on, whether it's these successive chapters in Genesis or as you go from Abraham to Moses to David, we see here a new tidbit that even kings will come from this line, God says at verse 6, all the way to Jesus, where it's all fulfilled. And we do get these different layers again here. Some of it's old material that we've seen before, stuff about offspring, stuff about land. It's all about, in these successive phases, God's people with his presence in his place, fulfilled in Jesus. God's people, the people of God in Jesus Christ, the church around the world and throughout the ages, with God's presence for all time, when we actually behold Jesus face to face in his place, the new heavens and new earth. God is building towards that here. But if there are some aspects that are old, we've talked about them before, let's focus on some of the new parts. We learned verse 6, it's a royal line, not just any line. But then also verse 5, finally we get the reveal of the name change where Abram is no longer Abram, but he's father Abraham. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what the name means, Avraham, father of peoples, of many nations. But the main thing here that's new that we encounter for the first time is all this stuff about circumcision beginning in verse 9. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. As it's practiced up to this present day by people of Jewish descent around the world, kind of a big deal. And what I'd like to do here is, in rapid-fire fashion, talk about five different aspects or facets of circumcision. And then when we talk about baptism, I'm going to go back to those same five things. What can we say about circumcision? It's synecdochic and sacramental. I'll explain what those means. And then also it is material and possessive and also gracious. Synecdochic and sacramental material and possessive, and then also gracious. Let's talk about that first one. I see puzzled faces, synecdochic, by which I mean it's a synecdoche, by which I mean we're talking about part to whole. So you might not be familiar with the word synecdoche. It's a literary term, but you use it all the time when you talk about one aspect of something that's so important that it stands in for the whole thing. If you get a new car and a friend of yours says, hey, great wheels, that's a synecdoche. That friend of yours is not saying, love those hubcaps, but a part of the car, the wheels, 
stand in for the whole. Does that make sense? If you're a captain in an army on the front lines and you're being shelled, you give your general a call and say, General, sir, that's how they talk in the army. Sir, we need more boots on the ground. But then if the general just sends a plane and drops boots on you, you'd be back in touch with the general and say, sir, all due respect, you misunderstood the synecdoche, right? Because that means soldiers, part for whole. My dad grew up on a farm in rural western Pennsylvania, and additional laborers on a farm were called then hired hands. When my grandma Jessie would tell my dad, hey, be, go find some new hired hands, my dad didn't, he found whole people, right? Part for whole. So it is with circumcision and its relationship to the covenant. It is such an important part of God's overall covenant that to talk about circumcision encapsulates the whole thing. I love the interplay between verses 10 and 11. Let's look at 11 first. And this is actually pretty fascinating to me. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a part. It's a sign of something bigger. Okay? But then verse 10 comes at it from this perspective. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's the whole. Circumcision is so important that God is able to tell Abraham here, this is my covenant, the whole circumcision. And in that same connection, it's synecdochic, and then also sacramental, where there is the sign of circumcision that points ahead to the thing signified, God's covenant relationship itself. And God has bound by his Holy Spirit a tangible connection between the rite of circumcision and what's going on at a deeper level. Kind of like this. As it is with circumcision, where there is a paring down and a humbling of the flesh, it points to the deeper reality of circumcision of the heart. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, there's tons of verses that talk about be circumcised not only in your flesh, but in your hearts. A paring down and a humbling of the heart. It's a sacrament that points to something much, much bigger. And then also, synecdochic, sacramental, material. Matter matters. This is a tangible, physical representation of something bigger. And that's just how it is. In different connections, we remember how bodies matter. I mentioned a couple of times as we've been talking about racism individually and systemically over the past couple of years that there are plenty of writers talking about systemic oppression say that it's an assault on black bodies, on bodies of color. It's not just this conceptual idea out there somewhere, but it's registered bodily and physically with people. Or I know a few of you have read the book I forget the author. I meant to go back and check. The Body Keeps a Score. Does that book ring a bell for, for some of you? That, that, that's a book that talks about how if you've experienced trauma in your past, it's not just something that cognitively you remember, but trauma rewires you physically. And there's a physical recovery period because the body remembers. And so it stands to reason that God's covenant with us registers tangibly as a touchstone of a physical reality. 
We have it at the end of verse 13 here. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Circumcision marks the people of God physically. And there's plenty of ways, culturally speaking today, that we have physical markers of different things. Some of you have tattoos. And if you do, you spend a lot of time thinking through, what, why this? How does this? What does this represent? What does this mark? Or jewelry, or clothing, or signs in the yard for a political candidate or one of the more evergreen ones. These things are marking you in different ways. And it's something for us to ponder I think it's fair to say everybody's marked by something, probably more than one thing. Whether it's decisive and you choose, or it just kind of happens. What are the things that mark you? And those things, whatever they are, are probably more formative for you than you realize. Synecdochic, sacramental, material, and possessive. As circumcision is practiced, It's not just the individual that receives it. It's the household. It's the clan. It's the nation. It's for everybody. Collectively, these are not just any people, the ancient people of the Israelites, but these are God's special people. They are marked off. They are separated. And in the Old Testament, it was the Israelites now in Jesus, Jew and Gentile altogether, a people of God's own possession. And it's really interesting So in English, one of the things that annoys me about the English language, most languages are not like this, but you, as it is right now, can be both singular and plural, right? There there, there are different dialects, so like y'all is a way of differentiating that second, second person plural, right? Kind of regrettably, as it sounds to my ears, in Western Pennsylvania, yins is a way of talking about uh, that. So I I have roots in Western Pennsylvania. I have yins. I have y'all. Grew up in New Orleans as well. Ye is an old English form of the U plural. Here in the Hebrew, as we have it in the two English paragraphs, the second paragraph is the one that talks about circumcision. There's a shift from paragraph one to paragraph two, primarily God just talking to Abram. Abraham, you person singular in the first paragraph. In the second one, when God is telling Abraham, circumcise generation after generation after generation, there's a shift there to you plural. God is not just talking to Abraham, but to all of the generations afterwards. Collectively, you are marked as my people, and you're called to live it out. And then also gracious. Circumcision is a mark of grace. Circumcision is a promise that God ends up keeping himself. We see that four books on from this in the book of Deuteronomy where at the beginning of the book, Moses tells the people of God, love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he goes back to the image of circumcision, where he puts it this way. God speaking through Moses, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. Be circumcised inwardly, humbled, pared down before God. So the command is to circumcise. But then at the very end of Deuteronomy, If you know anything about the book, there are covenant blessings, future blessings that Moses articulates. If you obey down the line, these are the blessings that are going to be for you. And we read at that point in Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
Stay with me. Beginning of Deuteronomy, the command, circumcise your heart so that you can truly love me. But then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the tacit understanding is you might not be able to do that really well because you're broken in sin, as we all are, but I'm going to do it for you. I am going to work so powerfully that I will do for you and give to you graciously what I command. God will have his people. So that was circumcision then. Now let's talk about baptism now. And another key Bible verse in the New Testament period is Paul's writing to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If if you're not catching all these references, give me an email before Wednesday, and I'll be happy to get all of these references to you. We'll also talk about them more in the Post-Sunday Blues Sermon Debrief podcast. Listen to what Paul says here. In Jesus, in him, also you were circumcised, talking to Jews and Gentile Christians, You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In Christ, Paul says, you were circumcised in heart and raised with him in baptism. Most commentators point to these verses and say, Paul is making a structural connection, a comparison between circumcision then and baptism now. And by the way, the tradition that I'm in in the Protestant church, this is why we invite families, uh, members, to baptize not just themselves, but also their babies and their infants, kind of like it was with circumcision. We don't require it or compel it if you open-handed Uh, We flex, it's not a hill to die on. But just as circumcision was given to young boys, eighth day circumcised, stereotypically back then, they didn't profess faith at, at day eight of their lives. But that circumcision, because it goes from generation to generation, marking off not only individuals but also families, that circumcision for those little boys became a call. Grow in for the rest of your life. Grow into your circumcision. Similarly, grow if you were baptized as an infant here or somewhere else. That is a call upon you. Grow into it. Fill it out by the grace and by the Spirit of God. That's why we do it. So let me just cast a little bit of vision for baptism here, and then we'll wrap up. It'll be a sermon. We'll call it a day. Which means if you're already baptized as a follower of Jesus, I want you to take away from this, hey, that's really great. I probably don't think about my baptism enough. I'm really grateful that this is true. Or if you're here or watching online and you're not baptized and still trying to figure out spiritual realities in different ways, would you be intrigued and say, hey, wouldn't that be great if this were me also? So what can we say about baptism? It's synecdochic and sacramental, material and possessive and gracious. Synecdochic, part for whole. Baptism is such a big deal that at key points in the New Testament scriptures, baptism stands in as a part for the whole of what Christianity is. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, resurrected. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Is there more for the church to do than just baptizing? Of course, but such a big deal, part for whole, do that. When in the letter to the Ephesian church, Paul talks about the unity of believers across time and space, he says, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism. That's what it is. St. Francis was attributed to say, in baptism we have died the only death that matters. Also sacramental, a sign pointing to the thing signified. The outward sign of washing, of being dipped in water or sprinkled, that points to the deeper work of cleansing and forgiveness and renewal that God is pleased to do for any and all that believe in him. It's believed that Paul has baptism on his mind when he tells Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Baptism signifies that washing. And then also material. It's a physical thing that we do. It's real water. And one of the interesting conversations over the past couple of years with COVID and pandemic and virtual church and all those sorts of things, the question was, can we do the sacraments virtually? And this is not a hill that I'm, that I'm going to die on. There were churches that began the practice, and then also to this day, there are virtual churches in like Web 3.0 at this point, and you have preachers that will preach in avatar, so you put on the motion capture suit, and then you also have your avatar joining a virtual space where there are virtual baptisms that are practiced. I don't think I'll ever be there. Not because I think it's like pit of the devil, horrible, horrible, horrible thing, but to me, if the whole point of the sacrament is the physical manifestation, and if it's true that matter matters, it just buzzes my tower to think, well, actually, let's just make that virtual and not use water at all. Matter matters. It's material and also possessive. You're called to live it out. If you are a baptized person, live out your baptism. John Mark Comer pastor on the West Coast, speaking of political realities, but more than that, has said this, followers of Jesus need to come back to the reality that baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. There is no person, no party, no principle that demands your allegiance if you are a baptized person like Jesus of Nazareth does. And we're called, like Abraham is at the beginning of this chapter, to walk blamelessly before God. And it's gracious. There are some Protestant traditions that emphasize that the sacraments, whether baptism or the Lord's Supper, it's really all about your responding to the grace of God. I locate myself in the tradition where, yeah, response might be part of it, but it's not this bottom-up thing where we are doing something as a response to the grace of God, but it's the other way around where the grace of God comes to us tangibly. And we're not saved by our works and what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. And just as God commands in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, circumcise your heart, but then God does, yeah, you probably can't do that right. I'll do it for you. Supremely in Jesus, crucified and resurrected. Christian, everybody, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You probably can't do that. You definitely can't do that because we're all sinners. But let Jesus do that for you. Let him obey and live the life of obedience that you could never live and let him die in your place. 
and in both of the sacraments that we celebrate here at Liberty Collingswood, that grace-driven direction is what comes to us in the sacrament. And the church has confessed that in a mysterious way, specifically with these two sacraments, God, by his Holy Spirit, shows up graciously. It's a mystery, but God shows up graciously in your baptism. Whether you're baptized, it doesn't automatically save you, just like circumcision didn't back then. But whether you're baptized as an infant or as an adult, God's grace is present. And there's a call upon you to respond in faith and repentance. When we take the Lord's table, you are graced again. It's not just any meal. When you have lunch after this, thinking grateful thoughts towards God, hopefully you do. But there's something special about this meal and this table because God has said, my grace will be spiritually present here and now. Two final things and we'll wrap up. If you're baptized, is there one behavior change for you and one missional step? One behavior change. Until Jesus comes back and we're in the new heavens and new earth, sin is still going to be a part of us. If you're sinning, one perspective on that is, and I sin too, but when I do, I am dishonoring my baptism. I'm not walking blamelessly as baptism has marked me to do. When my kids were younger, toddler age and that sort of thing, and they were behaving badly and maybe hitting one another, taking from one another, one of the things that Emily and I would say to them is, this is not who we are. We do not beat each other up. We do not take from each other. We love each other. We're not physically violent. We serve each other. This is who we are. If you're baptized and falling off the Jesus wagon in one way or another, Christians, that is not who you are. You are marked differently by your baptism. And then what missional step? If you're in Jesus, you are part of this Abraham story. Abraham is the father of a multitude of nations. And if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a sense in which he's your dad. It's the same story, fulfilled in the royal line of Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected. So that means, if you're baptized, that you have some living, speaking, and serving to do as the presence of Jesus here and now. What is it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.